The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 10% off. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, it's the programme everyone's talking about, Channel 4's Benefit Street. Revealing insight into the way we live now, or poverty porn. We hear from the man in charge of the company behind the five-part series, Love Productions. And also this week, we tell you everything you need to know about the Christmas and New Year ratings figures. Who won, who lost, and which programmes you'd have taken back and swapped for something else if only you kept the receipt. Plus, everything you need to know about changes to the defamation law but didn't have time to ask. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And joining me this week are Lisa Campbell, editor of Broadcast Magazine, and Mr. Steve Ackerman, managing director of digital content company Something Else. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. Uh, Now, it is that time of the year. It's the new year. It doesn't have to be media related, but it is called Media Talk. But um, got any resolutions uh, you, you want to sh- share with us, chaps? Any badness you're going to give up or badness you're going to take up? Or Well, I am doing the obvious thing of just trying to cut down the alcohol intake this month. But I'm still a problem, struggling Steve. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> just not every day of the week. Yeah, that's my exactly, ambition. Exactly yeah. that. I went to get my hair cut this week, which is not the point of the story. But uh, it was all going well. They said, yeah, I like a drink every night. I said, yeah, well, I can see that. I said, yeah, it's a bottle of wine a night. I feared for him. I Goodness. thought that's too much. That's too much. What's yours, John? My resolution. Yeah, well, it's kind of related to me, but it's it's uh, we've got a the TV is broken. It's unofficially broken throughout daylight hours, so that my daughter can't watch it anymore. She's been watching too much TV. Addicted to Peppa Pig, Ben and Holly, oh. Bambi, Lion King, anything you like, over and over and over again. So, so it, it springs to life magically at eight PM every night. But if she's listening to this, I'm doomed. But I'm pretty confident she isn't. Well, I always try and write a journal, you know, I always think I'm going to write a diary Ooh. and you know, everything and I manage for about three weeks and then it actually not even that three days, I think I've sort of kept up to date with it right now. You know, when you do those awful ones when you're a teenager and they're so embarrassing, you burn them and I thought, no, I'm going to do a really, really amazing one. <laughs> so, <But> your fr- <laughs> so your friends and family have got great insight into your life for the first three weeks of all of your years. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so New Year, kind of time of year, you get a new job, Lisa. Indeed, yes. You yeah, have got a new so. job. Congratulations. Well, it's taken me 10 years, but um, yes, no. So uh, 10 years hard labour on, on broadcast, um, editing for six years. So I, yeah, I did feel ready for a new challenge. And it's it's just fantastic, I think, to stay within the TV industry well, as well. What are you well. going to so, do? What are you going to oh, do? sorry. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm going to be festival director for the Edinburgh Television Festival. So the you hard will. work starts now? I mean, the hard it- work does start now. It, it'll start for me at the end of February. Already lots of interesting ideas on the table, including a, a fantastic new session from The Guardian, I think. We're going oh, yeah, to be looking, looking to, to you for that one. So. And who's doing the McTaggart? <laughs> Um, there are some great names on the on the list, but um, no one has firmed up as yet. Got so a list already? Yeah. Perhaps I shouldn't be yeah. surprised. Okay, right. And uh, just finally in this uh, uh, preamble that's becoming the, the, the bulk of the show, in fact, the main part of the show, is uh, we had lots of predictions last week for 2014. And uh, I predicted uh, last week that Lita would get a new job, so I'm a one out of one. <laughs> but um, chaps, your predictions, please, in a nutshell, if you would. Steve, first to you. My prediction is that brands are going to come much more to the fore in terms of content this year. And I think uh, the broadcast world has been a little bit insular looking inwards and, and maybe aren't aware how much uh, this is being talked about in marketing circles. And, and really, when I talk about content, I'm talking about TV, online sort of video or, you know, visual content, games and obviously audio as well. And I think we're going to see that increase massively to an extent where actually um, 
not this year, but where we're going to now start that march towards brands becoming very, very significant funders of entertainment. Okay, and Lisa, over to you. Uh, Well, I said last year that France was the new Scandinavia with the likes of zombie drama The Returned. And this year, you would not believe this, it is Australia. Australia's the new France. (laughs) It's the new France. It's it's currently producing some of the most creative and and controversial TV formats globally. It's it's selling like hotcakes. Um, One of them is The Moody's, um, recently acquired by Sky Living and picked up for a pilot by Fox in the US. And this is a crazy Australian family, a bit a bit sort of modern family-esque. Channel 5's Acquired Secrets and Lives, that's the family man whose life is shattered when he's accused of murdering a four-year-old boy. So more sort of murders on the, on the scene there. And um, Girls Meets Heather comedy, Laid, and that's being made for ITV. Absolutely scores of stuff coming from that territory at the moment and, and be- becoming very popular around the world. So we'll have to look out for that. Right, well, thank you both. And... To the main business this week. First up, we take a cab to Benefit Street. Not a real one, obviously, because we haven't got the budget, but this is Channel 4's new observational documentary series that began with a bang on Monday with more than 4 million viewers. It's already shaping up to be the most controversial programme of the year, with outrage on all sides, depending on where you sit on the political spectrum. It was either the worst kind of poverty porn, giving a distorted picture of life on benefits, or it was a shocking insight into the welfare state in Britain today. Either way, something must be done. I'm just not sure whether it's the government or Channel 4 who's at fault. But let's start by hearing from Mr Richard McCarrow, who is Chief Executive and Chief Creative Officer of Love Productions, which made Benefit Street. Also makes the Great British Bake Off by coincidence, so they've got all bases covered there. We sat down on Tuesday, the night after the first programme went out on Channel 4, and spoke about the immediate reaction on Twitter and the way that the documentary series was put together. One of the things that is at the heart of our programme making is contributor welfare. You know, we always passionately believe that you have to look after people when you sit down before they're on television, during the television programme making, before it's screened and after it's screened. So, you know, we're up there talking to them today. The eight main contributors have all seen the films in advance. And that's something that we try to do on all our programmes because it's something, it's a sort of philosophy that we believe in. And what you've got to say is Twitter did the same with Bake Off. (laughs) You know, I mean, the three female contestants this year were exposed to horrible bile and I've sort of come into and it's funny talking to the police the police regard the kind of social media noise as the threat they take least seriously you've got to take it with a pinch of salt it doesn't doesn't mean you can't you can ignore it completely and I thought Ruby's piece in the Guardian after the bake-off was superb was brilliant so I guess there were two responses one is the you know the bile and the hatred and stuff I mean how do you feel when it when a show you've made comes out that gets, generates that? Because was that the intention? I mean, you can't no, control what viewers well, it, think, well, it, but... Uh... No, I mean, it's never the intention. I mean, I think, actually, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, I got a text today from a friend of mine who I was at university with who lives in Birmingham, and uh, I should read it to you. Your programme is superb, very real and true. Have you ever heard Beasley Street, a poem by John Cooper Clark, just like Benefit Street, you know... I really believe in the importance of factual programme making being provocative, true, real, authentic. You know, you've got to be provocative, you've got to tackle, not be afraid to tackle difficult subjects, but it's how you make them, and you have to make them in a true, authentic way that respects the people who are being on television. The one thing we don't control is how the viewers and the audience are going to react to that, and that's something that we're honest with people in advance of doing the shows. 
uh, and that's one of the reasons that we do show the programmes to people. They, of course, they never have any edit editorial control, but we want to re restrict the harm that's done to people as far as we possibly can. You know, and you've got to remember as well, there are five films to go. So you know, last la last night's film introduced the street and focused on crime. Next week focuses on immigrants who live on the street. The following week focuses on uh, parenting and a couple who are struggling to raise children. Uh, the next thing is people who are, you know, trying to better themselves and get off benefits. And the final one is really about relationships and, and love. So it's a very, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's a broad series. And it was a coincidence that it came out the same time Osborne was talking about making yeah. another 25 billion a cut. So. I mean, that's fine. Yeah. You know, look, we did make Bradford British. And again, that was... I mean, you know, the incredible thing is that television has been accused in the while I've been doing it, because I started off in the day where you could do serious programmes and they were in peak time. And now you have to find new, different, innovative ways of making sure that serious issues stay in peak time on the television. And, and everyone goes, you know, unless it's dumbed down, you know, you won't get ratings. Actually, we did make Bradford British, which was a very... You just have to think more creatively and imaginatively about the entry point, because there are so many more channels, there are so many more demands of viewers, and you know what? Young people aren't going to watch telly when they can go on YouTube and they can go on Instagram and everything else. So actually, you have to... Th if you're a creative television producer who cares about an audience and by the way that's the other thing I often get kind of oh so you've you've you know you've made it noisy because you want to bring in an audience you've tried to entertain I always say if you're looking to me to apologize for trying to entertain you're talking to the wrong guy you know it's like accusing CBBC of doing something wrong for horrible histories you know I mean it's like we often when we try and brainstorm around ideas sometimes it's like someone will go you can't do that you go, oh, there might be a good idea in there. And then you go, so you take it from, well, you can't dare do that. How can you do that responsibly? And so what you'll do is you'll take the germ of an idea and then you'll go and talk to organisations who really work in the, in the area. I mean, I, you know, I sort of first discovered this when I was working at Channel 4 in the education department. And I, I was lucky in those days because I had the job to commission things that didn't have to rate. But if you could get them to rate, that would be really nice too. And I did a season on blindness. We did a documentary series, really fantastic documentary series in Moorfields Eye Hospital. Really brilliantly made. Went out at 8 o'clock, did about 900,000 viewers. But we also commissioned Celebrity Blind Man's Buff. And we did that working with, you know, organisations who work with the blind to make sure we're doing it properly. You know, we introduced, you know, blind people in part three who met the celebrities and everything else. You know what? The series, you know, got an RTS education award and got two and a half million years. And I just suddenly went, hang on. <laughs> Which means you've got to carry on doing all these programmes and you should never apologise for being imaginative or creative about bringing an audience to it. That was Richard McCarrow there of Benefit Street producer Love Productions. And I should add that despite the uh, constant uh, clinking of glasses, he, he wasn't celebrating the ratings and we weren't in a wine bar. It was just a couple of glasses on the table uh, next to us. Uh, anyway, Lisa, Richard said you, you can't control the response on Twitter, but uh, certainly Channel 4 will be absolutely delighted with the heat this programme has generated. And uh, They will. It's f um, four million plus ratings. Um I mean, for me, this was Daily Mail TV. This wasn't Channel 4 television, hence the ratings. But, you know, is that what Channel 4 should be about? It fell far short of the deep, reflexive, contextualised, observational documentaries that you'd expect of Channel 4, I think. It felt formatted and surface, and, and you know, Richard McCarrow there made no apologies for, for it being entertaining. When, and it, it was entertaining, and should it have been? I mean, it was... 
I think that was the entertainment was at the expense of a, a, an exploration of of the, the issues, the myths around benefits. Some statistics would have been nice. Um, it, you know, Love Productions is is more famous for Bake Off and Sewing Bee than it is for serious documentaries, and and I think that showed. Um, you know, contrast it to something like True Vision's Poor Kids, which was a on BBC several years ago and then they, they revisited that. It was incredibly moving. I mean, they, they spoke to the people on benefits, the families, they spoke to the children who were incredibly eloquent. And that left you with a feeling, you know, of anger, but anger towards the government, the situation, the, the lack of social equality. It didn't make you want to attack the individuals who were featured in the programme. And that was the result of this programme because it was so one-sided. I thought not not everyone who watched it will have wanted to attack the people in the in the program. A lot of people, like me, of for course, instance, no. I, I stopped it and, and had a lot of sympathy for them and thought the fault lay with the with the with the with the state rather than the individuals. But but it was an observational documentary, wasn't it? It was going to a street, spending a year with the people there, and, and pointing cameras at them, and then fashioning the footage they got into a story. So I mean, but it, but it was they didn't put the words into the mouths of any of the participants, or no? But but they, you know, they're, they're very selective about them about the moments, about the editing. I think documentary makers now have to be so much more aware and so much more responsible to. Towards contributors, because in an era of social media, things can inflame so quickly, and you have a, a responsibility before, during, and particularly after the, the show is aired, and constantly asking yourselves questions about the damage that this may cause to an individual. It was very, very much the, the central point at, at Sheffield last year, and a lot of concern around that. And I think this just shows what can happen. Looking after the. Uh the welfare of the people who took part was uh, something else that uh, Richard picked up in the interview, and you can read uh, more about that uh, our chat in the Media Guardian on uh, on Monday. Um, Steve, Channel Four uh, constantly flashing up hashtag Benefit Street, you know, throughout the program, not least at the most controversial parts, you know, and then everyone dives to their smartphone or tablet or whatever, you know. This is a uh, Clearly, they were very keen on, on generating this debate, uh, and, and they got it. You know, this is, I mean, who knows what next week's episode will rate. Yeah, but there's a difference between generating uh, an actual debate where there's conversation taking place and trying to just generate noise around your, around your programme. And I still think there's, um, there's too many programme makers who don't quite understand the difference that think just flashing up a hashtag is enough to, that's what, that's what social media is about. That's what Twitter is about. And it's not. It's about a conversation and it's about uh, an exchange of opinion. It's not a one way thing. And, you know, maybe that betrays the mentality of just saying, well, you know, great, we've, we've come up with a controversial subject. Let's just hope we get some noise and we'll measure the retweets and, and how many times our hashtag gets used. That's not what social media is about. And actually, if you go on Twitter at the moment, Twitter themselves are, are, are starting to write quite a number of blogs to showcase best use of social uh, media and best use of Twitter because I think they're starting to realise this now that you know there needs to be a slight education programme going on uh, uh, particularly for media properties and uh, and brands actually in terms of how social media is used. It feels like they're you know dancing under the volcano you know they, they, it's it's about the entertainment and then they're just not worried about the massive explosion that is going to happen. I mean certainly think the thing I got from that interview was to me it betrayed something that's that you often find as a bit of an undercurrent with TV programme makers, which is a real arrogance, actually. I thought it really betrayed a sort of a middle-class arrogance in terms of, well, it's OK, as long as, we, as long as there's a few psychologists on the, you know, on the production team who can give Dosh out a bit of advice, then, then we've done our duty of care. And I don't think it's about that, really. OK, and Lisa, this sort of, um, this debate about well, when uh, an obstock goes on TV and then people complain, oh, that wasn't the way it's been edited badly, is that, is that a, a, a sort of complaint that's as old as oldest television or is that happening more and more these days well i think it is really but it i mean you just you would watch that and you think did would anyone have seriously signed 
you know, signed up to being the target of hatred in this way. I just don't think that they would have signed up to that if they'd have, I don't know, either been properly informed about really what was what was ahead. But, you know, this is the first episode and, and we've we've heard that there's going to be going to be more and maybe they're going to surprise us and it, and it will be more balanced and reflective and humane perhaps we wait and see and just lastly Lisa, did you see any merit in the program at all i think you're right and you know you know it's about the resourcefulness of people in some ways in in, in dire situations and the and as and our community spirit i did think that that came across at times you know absolutely it, it sort of felt a bit stereotypical you know with white d as, as the mother of the um the street as well as her own kids but um of course, you know, it, it isn't without merit. I just think it could have been a lot more balanced. OK, well, that's almost it for part one. We'll be back with Lisa and Steve in a moment. But first, it wasn't just Jules Holland who brought in the new year. There was also a change to the libel laws. Yes, the 1st of January 2014 saw the first day of the Defamation Act 2013. But if your media law training was a one-day course in 1996, fear not, because Jill Phillips, Director of Editorial Legal Services here at The Guardian, is about to explain what it all means. Have your pens and paper at the ready. There will be a test straight after this. We've had the same basic defamation law for over 15 years, going back now to the 1996 Act and before that to, I think, the 1952 Act. And the key defences that we've always had have been truth, fair comment and various sorts of privilege. And that all those defences still exist, but they've been tweaked and developed by the new law. One of the defences that we had, although it wasn't in the old Defamation Act, it was created by the courts, which is known as the Reynolds defence, which arose out of a case that the Times fought in Ireland. That defence became known as the Responsible Journalism case, and it was a, that essentially allowed a court to give a newspaper, or indeed any publisher, a defence, even if the material that they published wasn't true or they couldn't show it was true, where they could show that they'd behaved responsibly in publishing it. And as part of that test, uh, Lord Nichols set out ten criteria that he said a court should look at when they were deciding whether a, a journalist or a new publication had behaved responsibly. And what, what happened over time was those criteria, instead of being things that a defendant could look at, were used by claimants as hurdles that a defendant had to overcome. And so it, it sort of changed from being a defence to almost being an attack by claimants. Now, what the new Act has done in Section 4 is completely done away with all of that. It, it specifically abolishes the Reynolds common law defence and it replaces it with a defence called the Defence of Publication on a Matter of Public Interest. That really focuses on whether a statement was made uh, on a matter of public interest, which will be a matter ultimately for the court to decide. But there's a second limb to it, which is whether the defendant, which is generally the journalist, the newspaper, the publisher, reasonably believed that publication was uh, in the public interest. I've just seen on the International Forum for Responsible Media blog, the Inform blog as we call it, a note by Graham Smith, uh, who is, I think, blogs as cyber legal, on internet legal developments to look out for in 2014. And he's got a very useful summary of the new Section 5 provisions, which are very important for web publishers in the defence. So there's some very good stuff there that's quite accessible. Right, now it's time to turn to a slightly less controversial show than Benefit Street. Or is it? That's uh, BBC One's drama Sherlock, which has just posted the biggest catch-up audience ever. 
a, t- a grand total of 3.5 million, recorded it, and then watched it in the seven days after it went out on New Year's Day, giving it a total audience of 12.7 million. Uh, Lisa, can anything stop Sherlock? And if it can, is it the people on Twitter who are moaning about it, saying it's not any good anymore? <laughs> yes, it was. It hasn't pleased everyone, has it? I think that we were all eagerly awaiting its return and to see exactly what it, what had happened to Sherlock, and we got about. 14 versions I don't know I kind of lost lost count actually and interest sadly I absolutely used to love this and I was really quite disappointed by the first episode I thought the it felt like a lot of money had been thrown at it but it had lost the sort of taut tight script um that that it had and I I sort of think it was an interesting attempt to involve fans because as Steve said earlier just sticking a hashtag on something isn't really you know, interactivity and involving the audience. And I think I think it's quite an interesting way of saying, well, you know, these debates were happening online. How can we involve them in the story? And, and acknowledging this huge sort of cult show out there online. And yet it, it then felt like a show for fans. And I don't think it was broad enough. I don't think it really served the core audience. I think it did just, just um, you know, lose lose itself you know it was it was pretentious wasn't it content aside for one minute what did you make of this 3.5 million figure because I mean, it, it is a sign of um uh, the changing way we're watching tv especially a show like sherlock when it was all about the big reveal and yet that still didn't put people off you know taping it and, and, and watching it when presumably they'd must have found something about uh, must have found out what happened well it's fascinating and obviously we i think we you know we, we we had a sniff of this last year but obviously we you know we do know that that this breakthrough moment is sort of coming really where sort of tablet usage uh or, or you know just catching up on demand uh, through PC or connected TVs is getting to a tipping point in the sense of, you know, what does that mean for for schedules? What does it mean for advertising? You know, if you're ITV Channel 4, that's that's a big issue that someone's more prepared to go out and buy the box set set or watch it on iPlayer or or, or UView or you know some other catch-up service so I think seeing those sorts of numbers is is really really fascinating and it fits into Tony Hall's strategy which you know he announced his vision last year and it was all about making the iPlayer the front door to the BBC um, so it, you know it's really showing he's obviously on, on the right lines here because the iPlayer is going to be it's just going to grow and grow it's going to be used to showcase the rest of the BBC archive I mean um, increasing the catch-up from seven days to 30 days allowing more personalization and recommendations and they're also launching bbc store um this year as well which is going to allow people to sort of buy and own content so it's very forward thinking you know i think there's a there's a growing demographic and especially amongst young audiences where where live viewing happens to a very very small degree and i, I know i've referenced them on a number of times but you know, i keep looking at my kids and they just don't watch live tv they they, they just don't do it in any sense yeah, for reasons I won't go into now, I was rather taken out of action over the Christmas period. But because of the joys of catch-up, uh, suddenly your Christmas radio times, it's not a preview thing, is it? I, I then looked at that new year and thought, oh, wow, what can I catch up on? So you're going back to Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and, and what have you. And Steve, you mentioned tablets there, and I've got another stat for you, because I know we all appreciated my, uh, my um, catch-up stat earlier. This Christmas, uh, more people watch programmes on the iPlayer on a tablet over the Christmas period than they did on either laptops or desktops, which is the first time this has happened. On Boxing Day, there were 2.2 million iPlayer requests and tablets compared to 2.1 million from old school computers. So that, that, that proves your point. Well, I think the, uh, the sort of, you know, the nice uh, element that iPlayer has in relation to tablets is that ability to download and store a program. And you think about the amount of journeys and traveling that's going on around Christmas. And obviously, it's just absolutely purpose made for that. How often do I forget to download programs before I leave the house? I think I've only managed it once. 
mm. in my entire time on this earth. Obviously, iPlayer's <laughs> not been available my entire 42 years, but, uh, uh, you know, so I really should watch the 739, shouldn't I, on the train, because what better place? <laughs> like a better interactive experience? Make sure you've got a good broadband connection at home. It does take a while sometimes, depending where you are. So. Yeah, yeah, you're not kidding. Don't start on that. Right, well, let's stick with the ratings game for a while longer. Uh, we're Dancing on Ice returned to ITV for its last ever series. Possibly a good thing, as its ratings fell off a cliff. But it turns out there's life in Celebrity Big Brother yet, uh, which got, I think, 3.3 million viewers for its return for its 168th series on um, on Channel 5, which was uh, good news for uh, good news for Richard Desmond. And we can't get enough of this sort of thing. And, and good casting this year, Steve. I know you're a big reality fan. I'm a big reality <laughs> fan, but I haven't been a, I'm a fan of some shows. I haven't been a fan of Big Brother for, for a long time. However, last night I did find myself quickly zapping on to Big Brother just to, to have a look at the cast. You're right. And, and I think the casting has been very very strong it's the first time I can remember in quite a number of years where where you can name you know at least half a dozen of the cast uh, and they're not all C-list people from reality shows and you've never even heard of the original show in the first place so yeah it, it, you know it's uh, ha- having said that having watched 20 minutes of it I thought blimey it is just the same old tat isn't it <laughs> <laughs> stick that on the box set the same old tat Steve Ackerman uh, at least the dancing ice I mentioned there was back with its lowest ever audience I think but uh, they kind of hunt for the next generation of shiny floor Saturday night entertainment shows or Sunday night in that in the case of dancing on ice kind of goes on you know the, mm. the old apart from Strictly well we're looking to Israel not it's not just all about Australia obviously it's uh, yeah. so so rising star is the big new entertainment show for ITV that involves the viewers actually and it's quite interesting that you, you know you have an app and then the person on stage is in or out according to the views of people at home um, in a much more interactive way than we've ever seen before so um, you see it live on the big screen behind the right. presenters yes and uh, well, talking shiny floor and show, Kylie Minogue is, the, uh, is, is making a debut as, uh, as the coach on The Voice uh, this weekend uh, Steve is she, is she the answer and, w- and what's the question uh, it's, it's only coming back for a third series guaranteed so far they're going to wait and find out how this does before they decide to commission a, a, a fourth on BBC One uh, I, I think she's going to uh, give it the lift it needs and, and I think it will do great business there you go I've stuck my neck out well I think there's a flaw in the format uh, I also think the other there's only th- a chair in the format well there is a chair in the format and, and the chair works in the early episodes as we know and then kind of becomes irrelevant you know the other thing is I think in judges you need opinions and Kylie is just about one of the safest pop stars you're ever going to get. She she has never she will never say anything that could offend anybody anywhere. So unless she's looking to reinvent herself in some way, and maybe she is, you know, maybe she 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 feels the time has come for that. I can't see it. It's a warmer show. It's it's not there to be. You know, you're not supposed to have Simon Cole tearing people to shreds, and and that wouldn't be right for the BBC. So I can imagine Kylie will be absolutely lovely and uh, and and say you know great encouraging things to people. That's that's kind of what she's there for, isn't it? I, I can't wait to see Kylie. I love Kylie. But it's not. <laughs> but it's not entertaining, is it? I mean, it doesn't need to be tearing people to shreds. You know, look. I mean, you can give people advice um, and be strong with them, but I'm not sure whether is she, are we really going to see that from Kylie. Well, having seen much of the first episode, Steve, I think you might be right. But uh, the secret weapon is is, uh, is the puppy dog eyes belonging to uh, Ricky from Kaiser Chief, who is uh, the Kaiser Chiefs. <laughs> I'm down with the kids, aren't I? Is there more than one Kaiser Chief? Yeah, there isn't there. Who were quite big, apparently, in the, in the middle of the last decade. But uh, anyway, he's, he's quite a hit, actually. He, he came across very well, so I think he might be the... Uh, is he the new Kylie? Is that how it works? No, right. Well, sticking with TV, we mentioned uh, Big Brother there. And uh, Channel 5, uh, Lisa, is up for sale. Owner Richard Desmond wants at least £700 million, which wouldn't be bad business for, uh, for a broadcaster he paid £103 million for uh, only three and a half years ago. And it only recently made a profit. But uh, if, if he's selling it, who's going to buy it? Uh, well, there's a number of suggestions. Um, interesting. 
interestingly, B Sky B and BT. Um, just given the you know the bidding war over sporting rights, I think it's quite it's quite interesting. Maybe more likely to be BT, given that you know it would be very useful to have a free to air platform for that content. It also allows it to expand its content beyond sport and movies. For B Sky B, I mean maybe they make a play for it because they it's a it's a spoiler. I mean we know that Sky is very good at striking deals to you know for the sake of destroying someone else. There's also I mean. Discovery, I think, could could be a potential. You know, it's it's prioritised free to air um, recently. You know, it's beefing up across Europe. It, it acquired the Scandi Group, SBS, Nordic, and Middle East um, Food Network. I think there's also Turner. You know, obviously Gerhard Zeiler was involved when he was at RTL, the previous owner. Uh, so he he may not go for that, but they you know they've certainly got the cash. Um, again, a, a free to air opportunity. And he has said um, when he acquired Chile Vision back in 2012 that it would not be the last free-to-air acquisition for the for the group. Steve, do you see anyone paying 700 million quid for Channel 5? Well, I was looking at the profit figures and then, uh, you know, most of the ways businesses are rated is on PE ratios. So basically you times the profit figure by normally, you know, something like probably 8 to 12. Uh, and that's, that's basically the value of the business. And uh, if you apply that to Channel 5, it's not worth uh, 700 million. So there's a clear premium being applied. And then I think a premium on top for the fact that Look, at the end of the day, he's done a great job. He's turned the business around. It was loss-making. Now it's a profit-making business. So for someone to come in and, and buy that from him means they've got a business that's already up and running and very, very viable. But it seems, seems a pretty high price to me. Yeah, it does. Well, we wait and see what happens to Channel 5. Coming up, a bit of radio news and, of course, the very famous Media Monkey Quiz. There's no TV layer this week. Uh, Rebecca Nicholson's gone missing. Uh, no, no, she's on holiday. So in her absence, we're going to talk a bit of radio, uh, and uh, specifically Mr. Neil Fox, uh, no longer a doctor. Uh, that's been revoked. Some controversy with uh, how many years he spent at medical school. He signed a new two-year deal to present Magic 105.4's breakfast show in London. Steve, what about the London breakfast show wars? I mean, he's, he's lost... He lost listeners. Dr. Fox lost, lost listeners. Uh, has lost listeners year on year, uh, and they seem to be uh, wanting to make the show a bit more contemporary. Uh, they're moving an hour later. Uh, I think the foundations are at bad news for foundations fans. They're off the playlist. I can reveal on the on the Magic Breakfast show. But uh, how's Foxy doing? And um, where's he lying? Well, I suppose the thing about uh, him is he is he's one of the few genuine names that commercial radio has. And, you know, look, Magic's performance overall over the past few years has, has obviously been, been strong. And the real battleground audience is obviously here. It's not the young demographic because they are continually uh, moving away from, from radio and you've got less stations in that, in that space. In this space, you've got obviously Smooth and Radio 2 and Heart. So there's, so there's great, great competition. Whether he's the solution when he's been there for quite a number of years now, I don't know. But he's, he's a good presenter. And frankly, it's, it's a pretty safe show and he's obviously a safe bet. So... Yeah, Steve, so who are the kind of big commercial radio stars? I mean, you go back a decade and you've got, you know, going back to my era, and you've got, you know, your Terrence and, and, and what have you. But now it seems they're thin on the ground, not too many household names. No, that's right. I mean, I suppose, obviously, Christian O'Connell is probably the standout name. Johnny Vaughan is actually on TalkSport each week and, and doing pretty well. And so, and obviously he had many years on, on Capital. Uh, but then it starts to, you know, I suppose, you, you know, you do start to struggle a bit. I suppose, I suppose the other area is maybe looking at LBC. Uh, so names like Nick Ferrari already we're struggling aren't we so Lisa where's the next generation of talent going to come from for commercial well possibly YouTube um, I think it's interesting that Dan and Phil are now on Radio 1 and, and they've, they're a Sony award winner aren't they um, and 
you know this this idea to try and make radio become a more visual and internet based experience because their view is young listeners just aren't using the radio so I think that that's quite interesting sort of strategically for the BBC and, and, and for others as well but I was talking to an agent the other day who you know had had a couple of YouTube stars for a year massive online and were not interested at all in any TV or radio opportunities just turned everything down and said what's the point a we get far far more viewers on our own channel and b we don't watch TV we don't care about TV we're not interested and I think that's a real challenge for broadcasters I've got to hold my hand up here because we're we're the agents for for Dan and Phil and it is fascinating when you see those guys they've got four million people following them on YouTube and you do get into that debate and it's 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 about the money you know actually why do I need to do it when I when actually it's not worth it's not worth my time for the money and it is about the time commitment why do I need to do it when I can turn around a video at home or that's very quick what I have to go into a studio somewhere and I have to spend half a day and then they want me to come to you know come and do this and that and and you're right, I think, especially for TV, when you look at the commitment involved, it's it's very unappealing for YouTube stars. But can you make a living, Steve, off YouTube, you know, without going to a mainstream broadcaster? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some, some, of, these, some of these significant names are earning very, very good money out of it. Give us an idea, go on, how much? Not Dan I, and Phil, obviously. I'm not going to give you an idea. But no, I mean, I mean you know, to, exactly what Lisa's saying. To, to the extent where, in the old days, if you were an up-and-coming presenter, you try and get some gigs on TV, and maybe for a few years you'd earn a pretty decent living out of it, and then you hoped you could break through into a, into a bigger way. These guys on YouTube, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're able to, you know, to buy houses and cars out of the money that they're making. Okay, and just uh, finally on radio, over at Bow Rival Global, uh, losses widened to almost £30 million for the year to end of March, but uh, the good news was operating profit was up 11% to £37 million. The highest paid director, unnamed, but believed to be founder and boss Ashley Tabor, was paid £2.04 million. The accounts also revealed for the first time that Global paid £69 million for smooth and real owner GMG Radio, which it will now have to break up after it lost its appeal against regulators who said parts of it had to be sold off to satisfy competition concerns. And Steve, it feels like that sell-off will be one of the radio stories of 2014. Who buys it and how much money Global lose on the deal, essentially? Yeah, I mean, clearly there's going to be a big loss uh, around it. And, uh, you know, I think the the undercurrent of the whole Global story is kind of irrelevant that they're making losses because, actually, again, they're forming a very large group. There's a lot of investment going on. And, and, you know, you look at the turnover and the operating profit, that's that's all up. The big question is, I think, can they ever get it to the stage where they can create enough value to to earn their money back on the original deal you know there was a huge amount of debt that went into funding that deal and um they paid what 600 million plus yeah for that. i mean you know it's difficult at the moment to 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 see to see where a buyer would come from that's going to give them a massive return on that okay that's uh, enough radio for this week just finally time uh, for our media monkey quiz uh, question number one uh, whose pay rose to 1.85 million pounds last year paul dacre editor of the Daily Mail, who continues to be the UK's best-paid newspaper editor. So that's uh, one to Lisa. Question number two. Uh, the tension is, is uh, I've bit my nails off. Which radio station made the wrong kind of breaking news uh, ra- this week? Ra- radio 4. Is he? And he didn't even wait for this me to is, stop. Uh, this is, I assume, you're talking about the 10-minute, the, uh, the uh, lack of the news bulletin. That's right. 6pm on Saturday. There, there was no news. Radio 4 lost the news. But sterling work uh, by, oh. the, uh, by the announcer there to, to keep uh, going. It just fills me with fear, the thought of that. I mean, John, what would you do if that ever happened to you? Oh, who knows? 10 minutes that? of... The Radio 4 played more trailers in that space than there were on top of the lake, uh, around that lake. Uh, right, or trailers, tra- you know what I'm saying. Right, question number three, it's one all, this is the tiebreaker. Who's going to broadcast from space, they revealed this week? Channel 4. In with a bullet. Yes, that's Channel 4 claiming a British TV first. It says here, taking viewers on a 90-minute high-definition trip around the world, broadcast live from the International Space Station, whatever that is. Bonus point, uh, who's going to present it? 
Dermot O'Leary. Oh, <laughs> who doesn't strike me as a, an obvious choice for a program about you know uh, intergalactic space travel? Except uh, if it's a live show, and because I, I, I know he's going over to Florida, I think for it or Houston, wherever. But if it's a live show, he's a he's a fantastic live presenter. Mm. Uh, and at so, least uh, at least Channel Four can't piss off any contributors in space, can it? That's right. They've, they've got <laughs> no rights issues. Uh, so it's two all. If, if I'm allowed to include that bonus point, Lisa. Okay. So I feel like we should have a, a tie break, which is uh, who presented Space Cadets. Channel oh. 4's last venture into space. I do know that. It was Johnny Vaughan. That's it, yes. And and I've got an addition to this one. Go on. Which is one of the agents who works for us, is, who's a lady called Sarah Jane Cass, was one of the contestants on it. Really? This is the programme in which they sort of uh, pretended to dupe people into thinking they were going into space, yeah. but in fact they were in some... Uh, I forget where it was now, Lincolnshire or somewhere. I think it's some best sort of, forgotten, that show, isn't it? Best forgotten, one of the giant flesh all time, are we? Uh, right, well, that's it. So it's 3-2 to Ackerman. Uh, Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> out your prizes in the post. Uh, and on that space-tastic note, it's uh, time to thank all our guests this week, who were, of course, Lisa Campbell and Steve Ackerman, uh, also to the uh, Guardian's Jewel Phillips, and to Richard McCarrow uh, of Love Productions, who will doubtless be back in the news on Monday when the second episode goes out on Channel 4. Uh, hashtag Benefit Street. And, of course, hashtag Media Talk, if you get fed up with that one. Anyway, uh, you can leave your comments uh, on today's programme on our blog, and, of course, you can tweet me at JohnPlunkett149, or you can track down the producer, who is, of course, Mr. Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN. 